Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And I'm sorry I have to fade that out. That's the end of the first Celtic folk show for Tuesday afternoon between 3 and 4. And I'm quite sure there'll be many, many more with Anne McAllister. It's coming up to 4 o'clock and it's time for two hours of Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. Beginning today, the program with two stories focusing on the time Brendan Nelson spent as director of the Australian War Memorial, which included his promotion of arms manufacturers as sponsors and his leaving to take up a senior position with Boeing, one of those sponsors. David Stevens, the editor of Honest History, and Dr Sue Wareham, president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, will be speaking about this issue. Also, what is the coronavirus, and is it being used to promote racism? I'll be speaking with Carl Winter, retired researcher in biochemistry. Also, Neil Blake, the Port Phillips Baykeeper, with updates on campaigns, and also the courage of a US whistleblower, Brandon Bryant, as told by Stephen Daly from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. But he's back, Mr Kevin Healy. You thought he might never come back, but he has. A week, Jane, listener, when, well, several weeks, which I'm sure has been a great relief for you, listener, but bad news, we are back. Several weeks that were, when Big Supremo scuttled them more lash sun, performed so brilliantly that Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Anthony all being Uzi, became more popular than scuttled them without doing anything, which is his policy, showing his policy is working a treat. Although in these polls, it's more a question of who's the least unpopular, which this week happens to be Anthony, and in the unpopularity stakes, what's it say for Barnacle as he waited from a swamp somewhere and couldn't even beat the hayseed and sheepshit supremo Michael McComick in a battle of the minds over climate change, and given they all know there's no such thing as climate change, the battle must be to determine who is the biggest denier, as they said their constituencies don't care about climate change. Don't give a stuff. An issue only for inner urban greenies, as pejorative a term as you can level. Constituencies don't care about climate change, while those constituencies were engulfed in infernos, which had absolutely nothing to do with that of which there is no such thing and about which they don't give a stuff. So all those people interviewed in those constituencies suggesting now just might be the time to talk about climate change must have been tourists, holiday makers just passing through, inner urban greenies talking nonsense. And as the infernos raged across the environment, the one shining light, so to speak, was no one had the slightest idea where Scuttle then was. He'd just disappeared miraculously. He wasn't. 
But then after a few days he was again and assured us he understood why people wouldn't shake his hand and seemed a bit upset with him because they were going through stress and despair and it had nothing to do with him. And all those people who hated him didn't really hate him, they just thought they did because they were going through stress and despair which had nothing to do with him. How could it? I was in Hawaii when all this started. It wasn't personal, showing he must have made good use of his time setting it up on an Hawaiian beach, studying the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo, Donald Trample, the Paws, Book of Logic. The puck doesn't stop here. Perfection can never be wrong, ever, ever. And Scuttle then yelled, Hallelujah, and bless the inferno, because this is the Armageddon his religion knows precedes the end of the world as we know it, the righteous living eternally with the dear baby Jesus, showing his policies are working, and Scuttle then warned us all to repent or spend an eternity in the fires of hell, which a large part of the population was already experiencing. While those glaring differences in the hayseed and sheepshit party over climate change were exposed when Fossils Forever Minister Matt Canavan of Coal resigned in support or to support Barnacle showing what a whiz he is with numbers and then an ideological rival, the appropriately named Keith Pitt Pony took over the Fossils Forever portfolio yelling Fossils Forever. But like Matt he also supported non-polluting uranium as a source of power to counter the climate change he knows doesn't exist. Well, uh, non-polluting if we discount a couple of hundred thousand years of waste pollution, radioactivity, but as Keith pondered philosophically, with our other policies, that won't matter. And if Pit Pony is an appropriate name, the most inappropriate is the new hayseed and sheepshit deputy supremo, a bloke called Little Proud, because he has so much to be proud about. After all, before the failed barnacle resurrection, he was Minister for Natural Disasters, and what a success story! There were natural disasters just everywhere. Although nature needed a bit of help from the species which considers itself top of the pile to achieve Little Proud's proud achievements of natural unnatural disasters, but then if he didn't give them a little push on the way, he wouldn't be doing his job. And as the natural unnatural disasters raged across the country, our minister for making the filthy rich filthy richer, Matthias Rotten Tuber, turned up at the filthy rich annual talk fest at Davos to tell the world true blue Aussie was being unfairly attacked for being a shackle on international attempts to address that which the government knows doesn't exist. We would exceed our Paris and Kyoto agreements and don't forget the onerous target we set ourselves at Kyoto was to increase our pollution, which we've proudly achieved. Sometimes we just have to puff our chests out and as true blue Aussies and bathe in jingoistic glory. And this impertinent Scandinavian teenager made these ageist comments when we all know her place is in the classroom. Confident she can safely leave the guardianship of the planet in the hands of responsible adults like Matthias and Donald, who attacked the
the prophets of gloom, forecasting an apocalypse, a burst of wisdom set against the background of down under in flames, and any remote suggestion there may have been a relationship between anthropological greed and the infernos was scotched when Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head returned from a well-earned holiday with the headline, Warming is good for us, conceding a surreptitious admission, incidentally. So let's get out there and make a decent job of warming the joint. The usual suspect columnist's thoughtful contribution, making it hard to believe that in the middle of all this, one of Lord Rupert's scions dared criticise the family international propaganda brainwashing machine over its climate change denial, its imbalance on the issue. The, his accusation, his allegation, because we would never believe such calumny, leading Lord Rupert's whopping sin editor here to declare, speaking for all fair-minded people, I shudder at the extent of misinformation if News Corp journalists weren't presenting their wide variety of coverage and analysis. Uh, a wide variety? The full spectrum from total scepticism to outright denial. Speaking of, in another scathing attack this week on the government on behalf of the caring business class, Anthony Albing Uzi said, direct quote, a business doesn't know what the government's policy is because, frankly, they simply don't have one. Uh, just like you, Anthony. Frankly, there is no comparison between the policy they don't have and the policy we don't have. Oh, it's always a heavily contested battle, but no, let's give it to him. Anthony, your pot calling the kettle award is on its way. Although... No, no, we've given it to him now, but US Ops Secretary for World State Mike Pompeo or else comes a close second. Well, the US Ops itself, as Mike told a security by trained killing, trained killing intelligence conference in Europe, trained killing intelligence, <laughs> there's a classic oxymoron, which included the filthy rich merchants of death who protect the, uh, the free world by selling their merchandise to both sides, showing how even-handed and caring they are. Anyway, the always cheery, happy, happy Mike told the assembled lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy that evil Russia and evil China were bent on creating empires. Evil, evil empires. Imagine how that would have braved the US of's hatred of empire building. But the audience must have breathed a sigh of when Mike assured them the US of would use its train killers in almost every country across the globe to protect the world from those bent on empire. What a strong pot calling the kettle contender. And the US Ops Secretary for Train Killer Offense, Mark, to spare bad guys, told the conference we all face a bleak future unless we do all we can to contain evil China and countries prepared to utilize Chinese technology could expect US of retaliation, showing just how much the US of opposes empire building. And Mike said again, direct quote, the West is winning. But he didn't say winning what, and 
surely the peace love and US of wouldn't mean no, no. And showing how true blue was, he is doing all we can to obey Mark's containing China order. We cancelled a security visit to Her Most Gracious, Gracious Majesty's home country because they are using Yahweh and went to the US of instead to analyse just how evil Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country is to defy the US of's anti-empire building orders. But then, true blue Aussie never, never disobeys the US OBS orders because we cherish our independence. The commander-in-chief, even in his megalomanic triumphalism or trumpalism, couldn't help but display his idiocy, declaring he never thought he'd love a word so much. Greatest word ever, ever. A word he now loved. Total acquittal, which Donald just happens to be Two words, but then if he'd said two words, he would have been telling the truth, and that's most likely anathema. I reckon if all those mostly low-income souls lined up at magistrates and other courts around the country every morning, awaiting the full force of capitalist justice, could unilaterally declare the prosecution could not present its case, had no right to present any evidence against them, then there'd be a lot more total acquittals here as well. Finally, speaking of re-emerging from a swamp, spare a thought for the Minister for keeping us secure, concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, thwarted in his attempt to protect us by irresponsible their honours, declaring the indigenous people of this country are not aliens. This is alien to the, you know, like, 232-year history of this, like, you know, country. Pete spoke for all of us. Bad luck, Pete. Good afternoon. Well worth waiting for, Mr Kevin Healy. And this is the message I'll be playing a couple of times during the program today. Julian Assange, the editor and founder of WikiLeaks, is facing extradition from the UK to the USA at a trial commencing in London on Monday the 24th of February. A public rally will take place where we can call on all parties involved to end the torture of Julian Assange. Let's help bring home Melbourne's own Walkley Award-winning journalist. If he is extradited, he faces a secret military trial and a likely 175-year prison sentence, if not the death penalty. Please be on the right side of history and join us on Friday the 21st of February, 6.30pm at Victoria State Library. The No Extradition Rally is brought to you by Melbourne for WikiLeaks, a proud supporter of Community Radio 3CR. Back in 2017, David Stevens, an editor of the Honest History website and a member of the Heritage Guardians group, posed the question, should Australia's chief war memorial be able to appropriate the words of the national anthem? He was referring to a newish Australian war memorial ad at Canberra Airport, where there was one in each of the Qantas and Virgin arrival areas with a lovely picture of the memorial at night with the slogan for we are young and free and bottom left the words proudly supported by Northrop Grumman one of the world's largest weapons manufacturers 
and military technology providers. Today, David looks at the legacy of Brendan Nelson, where the Australian War Memorial might go under its new director, Matthew Anderson. Can we begin, David, with the recent history of the Australian War Memorial prior to Nelson taking on the directorship in 2012? Were there connections between the memorial and arms manufacturers then? There were, not to the same extent. The best example of that is um, 2008, um, Steve Gower, who was the director then, um, organised a... um, some sort of donation or I don't know how much the donation was but from BAE Systems, one of the the biggest um, arms manufacturers and in return for that BAE were able to name the Memorial Theatre, the BAE Systems Theatre. Now that was renewed again in 2013 under Nelson's directorship so there were things happening but probably not to the same extent and Nelson has been very uh, assiduous in in chasing down um, other... um, donations from other manufacturers. Can we trace this back to his time in politics as Minister for Defence? I think to an extent. I mean, the Boeing connection is is fairly clear. I mean, he's, he's gone now from being um, director, as you know, to, to being Boeing's um, head of... It's the sort of chairman of the board arrangement for um, uh, Australia, New Zealand and the, and the South Pacific. If you look at his time in defence... He was instrumental um, when they were phasing out the F-111, which was a sort of Lockheed Martin General Dynamics product. He was instrumental in ensuring that the replacement was a, a thing called the Hornet, which was made by Boeing. That was against advice from the defence uh, establishment. It was probably the right decision at the time, but certainly it gave him a close relationship with Boeing uh, as, as um, minister in sort of 2006 period. When he became um, director, the most noticeable no, notable um, link with Boeing was when they wanted to put up an exhibition about the Afghanistan commitment. And Nelson says that that could not have happened without a $500,000 donation from Boeing. And that's um, certainly mentioned on the website um, of the memorial and mentioned in the actual Afghanistan um, area of the memorial. So there have been those connections with Boeing, so I suspect he's been involved. He's reasonably close to Boeing all the way through, but, but not only Boeing. I mean, he's got good contacts with... has had good contacts with other um, uh, other manufacturers, particularly with Thales, the French uh, maker uh, of arms, where he has, since 2015, been on the advisory board of Thales. It's not, it's not the board, the actual board that runs the place but it's a sort of advisory board where they tap into people who know about these things and he was uh, clearly asked to go on that board because of his experience as former defence minister so you get this sort of people's experience in in different areas is seen as relevant to in this case becoming an advisor to Thales. Wondering what his brief was in 2012 when he took over as director are they advisors to where they should go to get donors? No, no, it's, I don't think so. I mean, you have to remember that the donations, I mean, the figures vary from year to year, but the donations are often only in the sort of four and five million area. I think in the last three years, I think the biggest figure was about three years ago, it was about $13 million. So it's not as if they're relying on them 
to, to stop the place from falling over. They're getting 60-odd million a year from government. I think they basically just knock on doors that look like they're going to open for them. Um, you look at Northrop Grumman have only been a donor to the memorial for a little while, a couple of years, maybe three years now. Um, and that started off that started off with a, a, a big cocktail party in Anzac Hall in um, around Christmas one year. And you can see that that would have been possibly um, on the uh, with the idea that Northrop Grumman, once they were in the building and were shown the, the things that uh, they displayed, they didn't know them already, would, would be sort of encouraged to become a donor. So I think it was more... He wouldn't have had a brief to, to seek these people out. He would have had his own contacts, um, and other people in the memorial would have had similar, would have had contacts not as good. But he would have he would have known um, who, who the people were to uh, to knock on the doors of. What's interesting um, in all that is that his remuneration included a sixty. I think his remuneration was in the order of three hundred to four hundred thousand a year, but. Uh, he also received a performance bonus of $60,000 a year, which is not unusual for people in that position, but we've always wondered whether the performance bonus was in recognition of his skills at drumming up donors from um, from places like Thales you know, and, and Northrop Grumman and so on, um, or was it was to encourage him to do so. So we've never been able to work out to establish the reasons behind that bonus, but I suspect that that's part of part of why he was given that extra money. Well, what do the arms manufacturers get out of it? They get kudos, I think. They get recognition. Um, they get, if you look in the, the, as you walk into the War Memorial, the donors are listed on the wall just inside the War Memorial as you go in. They have naming rights here and there, like um, the Boeing, the BAE Systems Theatre that I mentioned, the there's a way back from the, not from an arms manufacturer. The, the gas the gas association uh, were donors for the um, for the eternal flame, and they've got a little plaque on that. But now they get they get recognition. They used to get recognition in annual reports uh, of the memorial. But the new arrangements for the annual report uh, annual reports coming from government departments and agencies set up by the Department of Finance doesn't require so much detail. So I think the memorial, it's been a little bit embarrassed recently by revelations by people like us and others about where the money comes from and how much. They won't have to report it in future unless they want to. So, um, But certainly, if you're going, going back before this year's annual report, there's a listing in each year of the donors, and it's fairly easy to find them in there. And that's recognition, recognition for... Um, for the, the companies, the only other little extra thing that we've been able to pick up along the way is um, Dennis Muhlenberg, who recently was forced to resign as head of Boeing for other reasons. He was made a fellow of the War Memorial in about 2015 in recognition of um, his donations. So he's got a little plaque that says fellow of the War Memorial. So they're, they're fairly, it's fairly small scale recognition, but I think it, it, enables, it enables them, as, as with any company, that has a corporate relations strategy. It enables them to say, well, look, here we're, we're doing the right thing. We're donating to the War Memorial. Um, you could argue, as we have frequently, that that's inappropriate, that, that arms manufacturers should donate to the War Memorial in the same way as it's inappropriate that cigarette manufacturers should donate to hospitals. But um, you can argue, argue that uh, at length. And where have you voiced your concerns about all this? We've essentially promoted it um, as much as possible 
uh, on the Honest History website. We've had a lot of uh, journalistic interest over the years, most recently from Mike Seckham in the Saturday paper, uh, before that from um, Christopher Nouse from The Guardian, um, who followed up the, um, the Thales arrangement that um, Dr Nelson had. I should say on that Thales arrangement that um, Dr Nelson donates, donated his um, whatever fees he got from that arrangement, donated them to the War Memorial, so that he wasn't being paid for that. But no, the, the, the journalists have been... I think Karen Middleton's been interested in, in the Saturday paper to an extent. Paul Daly has done a lot of stuff on this. It's hard to keep it running as an issue because a lot of people see it as essentially a Canberra issue. And there's always the risk, and journalists are aware of this risk, uh, as politicians are, that if you're seen, if you seen to be criticising the War Memorial, you're being seen as unpatriotic, um, and that's how we've been attacked by, uh, by Dr Nelson and, uh, and others, and I'm sure we will be in the future, for being unpatriotic and not, not seeing that the War Memorial is a sacred place. Well, are you aware of any other comparable war memorials in Western countries that actually accept money from arms manufacturers? Um, we've never followed that up. I suspect that, that there are. There's no, there's no war memorial that's quite the same as ours. Ours is a bit unusual in that it's a combination memorial, museum, research centre, archive. In other words, tell you that. I suspect that, that, that there are others. We've never really followed it through, but, but certainly it's been, been a, a, a part of the War Memorial's uh, financing for at least um, a dozen years, and they show no signs of stopping, although the, the um, new director of the memorial, Mr Anderson, Matthew Anderson, has said that he's prepared to look at look at this, um, this money coming from what we call the gun runners, but uh, I don't think it's going to change because they, they, uh, rel- they've come to rely on it as a bit of a top-up to what the money they get from government. What do school children see when they visit the War Memorial? I know there are buses and planes from all over Australia to the memorial. Are there static displays or more than static displays of these arms manufacturers? Static displays, yes, certainly. The, the one that they mostly go to is, the younger ones particularly, is called the Discovery Zone, which has things like an Iroquois helicopter in Vietnam, and they can sit in that and twiddle the knobs and so on, and a submarine from, I think, World War Two and, and other, other bits and pieces. They certainly see a lot of um, G for George. G for George is a Lancaster bomber that flew over... Germany in World War II, um, fly, flown by Australian and other pilots from strategic, from Bomber Command rather, and um, they, those pilots had a very um, high um, death rate, highest death rate of all Australian forces in that war. What the what G for George won't tell you, and what the commentary that the the guides at the memorial won't tell you, is the impact that G for George and others had on German civilians and, and Germans on the ground. I mean, there were more people killed in single nights of bombing in places like Dresden and Berlin than were, than were killed wearing the Australian uniform in the whole of World War II. But you won't see that sort of stuff. You'll see, I, I've seen myself with younger children, they do a, do a sort of dress-up thing where they dress up in um, army uniforms and, and uh, nurses' uniforms and so on, and they're shown a, a picture by... Um, a war artist of, of uh, uh, bomber command pilots in, in World War II 
and the, the children are asked um, why, by, the, by the minders or the, by the uh, educators, why do you think they're looking sad? And the kids say, invariably say, oh, because they might die. Yes, because they might die. And, of course, nothing is said about the, the deaths on the ground. That's, that's not the sort of thing that the War Memorial promotes. It's about what Australian people did in war and how some of them died. Um, very little about um, important questions like why we were there, was it worth it, and what happened to other people besides us. David, how long have you been involved with this issue as editor of Honest History and also with your work with the Heritage Guardian Group? Well, funnily enough, it, it started because in about 2010, there was a group who wanted, a group of retired colonels and other people around Canberra, who wanted to build additional um, memorials to World War One and World War Two near the, near the existing memorial. On, on the grounds, they said that, that the memorial was a, a memorial to the dead of all wars and there was no specific one to World War One and World War Two. A number of us, from some retired generals and air marshals down to peace activists and academics, thought this was ridiculous. One memorial was quite enough. And uh, we fought that to a standstill, and that didn't happen. So we really started off as defenders of the existing role of the War Memorial. But once we'd, we'd done that, we started to think about what was going to happen next. And this was about 2012, I guess 2013, early. And we realised that even then the, the centenary of World War One was starting to crank up and there would be so much coverage of that centenary that people would start to think there was nothing in Australian history apart from the Kharkiv strand of it, uh, the, 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 the war history. So we essentially, with a slogan um, which evolved a bit but became Australia is more than Anzac and always has been, we, we developed the website and we produced a book called The Honest History Book, which came out in 2017, essentially saying, trying to put Anzac in perspective, trying to wind it back from this sort of patriotic, uh, over-the-top, jingoistic version, which we came to call Anzacery, which was a term that was actually invented in 1967 by historian Geoffrey Searle, wind it back from that to a simpler, quieter, um, more reflective version of Anzac, and also to boost the other parts of our history, like the economic side, the, um, the role of women, the, the um, multicultural aspects, our relationship with great and powerful friends. And that was essentially the book that came out, and it's essentially been the line that we've, put, we've been putting ever since. We've got material on the website essentially about both sides of that, about winding back Anzacary, but also about building up um, other parts of Australian history. The Heritage Guardian things, uh, thing came about fairly recently because of the, oh, in the last 12 months or so, because of the plan to spend $500 million to extend the floor space of the War Memorial, and we've argued against that for a number of reasons. Um, we probably won't be able to stop it <laughs> because the Prime Minister is committed to it, but um, it, it is, it is a, a, a really ill-advised Ill, Ill and unnecessary expenditure, which the money could be spent much better on um, direct benefits to uh, veterans and, and their families. What is your argument? Is it just that the money should be spent elsewhere? Yeah, essentially. I mean, as the memorial's developed its argument, it's responded to us because it's sensitive about the fact that a lot of the new space, the big the space, will be to provide um, space for F-111 aircraft and helicopters and so on, which happen to have been built by the, the um, arms manufacturer company donors. And they've tried to get 
around that by saying, well, we think that this, these uh, new spaces and this, this military equipment in the new space can act as a therapeutic milieu for um, soldiers suffering from uh, PTSD and, and for their families so they can sort of extract meaning from the fact that there's an F-111 hanging from the roof, to put it crudely. We basically say there are much better ways of spending $500 million on uh, veteran suicide, on veterans' homelessness, than this fairly long, uh, far-fetched idea of, of building space, filling it with aircraft and saying it's therapeutic. But, yes, yeah, certainly the money could be better spent. There are places that the memorial has. It's got a big warehouse in Mitchell that hardly ever opens to the public, which could fit all of these big, big uh, planes and helicopters quite comfortably. And as, apart from anything else to do with the War Memorial, there are other cultural organisations in Canberra which are suffering, which are desperately in need of, of more money. They find it very difficult to get the same sort of inside track on funding that the memorial uh, is, has been able to get for many years. It seems that Nelson built this up to be his legacy. That's, he denies that, but <laughs> Kerry Stokes, who's the chairperson um, who's going to retire next year, that's a question we can come to, uh, to this year. He's, Stokes has described it as, as Brendan Nelson's legacy. It certainly has, has that look about it. It's um, something that Nelson has... has um, I think he's been a bit surprised by the by the opposition that there has been to it. Although once again, it's the Canberra, it's a Canberra thing. The the opposition has essentially been Canberra-based. The issue hasn't really gone much beyond Canberra. But no, certainly um, Stokes and and um, Nelson worked on the Prime Minister and the previous Prime Minister. They cut a few corners in the approvals process. To, to get it to make sure it was sort of pinned down before the last election, although Labor had more or less said they were going to support it. Yeah, so um, it's it's something that I think Nelson is very proud of. And as we've often said, if if any other part of Australian history had had as good a spruker as um, Brendan Nelson has been in that job, uh, there'd be no problems with people like us. But but we think essentially he's a bullshit artist. He's, he's been a bullshit artist and a a promoter of mythology, and um, that's not what we think the memorial should do. And you'd add Stokes to that? I think Stokes, Stokes is older. Um, he's 80. He's a great donor to the War Memorial. He's, he's sort of brought up a lot of Victoria Crosses and so on. But uh, and I think in some ways um, it, it, there's a hidden, he's a sort of hidden mover and shaker in that place, apart from anything else... Um, one of his uh, senior officers in his company is on the is a member of the War um, Memorial Council now, so he's got he's got more than one angle into the War Memorial through this um, person who wears two hats. What's interesting about Stokes, so just to round off on that, Stokes, as I said, turns 80 this year. Um, his term comes up in July. His, his term ends in July. On the other hand, Tony Abbott, former Prime Minister, was appointed to the Council of the War Memorial in September. We don't think that Tony Abbott is the sort of person who's going to be happy with just being on the Council as a member. And I wouldn't mind betting that when Stokes' term comes up in July, Abbott will become Chair of the Council and uh, the new Director, Mr Anderson, who's, a, we think, a sort of quieter kind of personality than... Uh, 
than uh, Nelson, uh, former, he's a former diplomat. Um, he and um, uh, Abbott will form a new team, and I suspect Abbott will be uh, as, as strong and as, as vocal or more so than Stokes was in Stokes' term there. Has Anderson said much about what he plans to do? He's only been interviewed a couple of times. He's, as I said, he's, he's currently... It's finished now, but he starts at the memorial uh, next month. He was um, deputy high commissioner in um, in London, and he was, and before that, ambassador ambassador in Afghanistan. He's basically said he agrees with the line that um, we need to give more space to uh, the veterans of recent conflicts like Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. He's also written uh, three children's books on um, uh, ANZAC-related subjects which, having just been reading them this week, follow the traditional line, Simpson and his donkey, the, the usual Anzac. Uh, not, not extreme stuff, but, but certainly no, no departures from uh, the sort of received version of the Anzac legend that the memorial presents. So he said, as I said before, he will look at the issue of um, arms company donations, but I don't think we can expect a huge change from him partly because uh, of um, uh, his background and partly because of the fact that he, needs, he works to a council which includes lots of generals and air vice marshals and, um, and, as I said, Tony Abbott. Just finally, David, the revolving door, politics, military-industrial complex? Yeah. I mean, we've used the term and other people have taken it up the military-industrial commemorative complex. And if you look at Brendan Nelson's history, uh, Minister for Defence, War Memorial um, Director, now he goes off to um, work with Boeing, uh, having worked um, as an advisor to Thales. Boeing makes the equipment um, that um, doesn't only get used by uh, Western people, it gets used by all sorts of people. And quite likely future commemorations will be commemorations of wars where Boeing gear and other gun runner kit, um, you know, arms company kit has been used um, to inflict casualties on Australian servicemen, which as we said is a bit like a cigar, cigarette companies sponsoring hospitals. It's essentially the revolving door, as you said. Other people have gone in a different direction. Some people are wearing a, couple, a number of hats at once, but yeah, it's, it's part of the same complex. It's, it's arms companies ingratiating themselves with the War Memorial, keeping in touch with people at the War Memorial and um, you look at what happens to um, retired generals and re- retired Air Vice Marshals who may well have been on the War Memorial Council. They all, they, once they retire they often end up on boards or, or doing other jobs with uh, arms companies. It's, it's a nice little closed circle. It looks as though you'll have plenty of work to do with Abbott does get that position. Well, we'll see. We'll see. He's, he's, he's formidable in the same way that Nelson has been formidable, but um, we'll see. We'll see. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. And that was David Stevens. He's the editor of, or an editor of Honest, Honest History and a member of the Heritage Guardian Group. Talking about the time Nelson... Brendan Nelson spent at the directorship of the Australian War Memorial and where he's going now, onto Boeing. Would you be surprised?
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. To the second part of the focus on the role of Dr. Brendan Nelson as the director of the Australian War Memorial from 2012 to 2019, during which time he allowed weapons corporations to act as corporate sponsors and on leaving took a senior job with one of those weapons manufacturers, Boeing. I'm speaking now with Dr Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. You're a Canberrian and have lived there for many, many years. How important is the War Memorial to Canberra? Well, the War Memorial is important to Canberra. It's a place that a lot of Canberrans do visit along with the the rest of Australia. I think it's its greatest significance, of course, is as a national institution. But yes, Canberrans do generally regard the War Memorial highly. It's something that we, we take visitors to, although I know a number of Canberrans find the place, and I'm sure other Australians find the place too distressing and particularly uh, too troubling in the recent direction of the War Memorial. So it is a highly regarded national institution, but there are some problems with the direction of it. Just talk about that recent direction. We could talk about the influence that the immediate past director, Brendan Nelson, has had over recent years. But I think one of the one of the major major issues now, of course, is the big redevelopment which Brendan Nelson has put in place, which will probably go ahead. It hasn't yet past all the hurdles it needs to pass but it probably will go ahead there are huge problems with this I think one of the main things to point out is that by all accounts by a a poll that was in the Canberra Times and by letters to the paper and other means of finding out what people are actually thinking um, it seems that not many people actually want this huge redevelopment and that really raises the question as to well why is it being done who do the council and the director of the War Memorial think they're actually representing when they're going ahead knowingly against the wishes of a large percentage of Australians? So I think that's a key issue. But one of the main things about the redevelopment is that it seems to be continuing this process of normalising warfare and particularly normalising the wars that Australia is involved in currently and one of the main reasons that Brendan Nelson gave for wanting the redevelopment was that he thought our current wars were not sufficiently recognised. But the redevelopment, we understand, quite a bit of the floor space is going to be devoted to weaponry, so-called large technology objects, whether they're fighter planes or land vehicles or or whatever. Now, this is not really in the nature of commemorative space. Commemoration is about commemorating lives lost. It's not about looking at chunks of machinery that might have been instrumental in, in the loss of human life. It's this transition from commemoration to museum that's deeply troubling for a lot of people and is really taking us away from the notion of looking with great sadness, a sense of tragedy and also a sense of learning at what's happened in the past but instead what we're being fed and particularly with the redevelopment is a focus on mechanisms of warfare how did this battle happen, what did the machinery look like but that's not what's important 
I think a lot of people would agree that our obligation to our war debt is really to learn from what's happened in the past. That goes far, far beyond just looking at the mechanics of battles and how wars were fought. It looks at why wars were fought and how could they have been prevented. But that's not what the War Memorial is looking at at all. It seems to be simply a normalisation of the of the killing business. Do people looking at his role over the last seven years equate it in any way with his former role as a Minister for Defence in the Liberal government? It's hard to know about that for certain. One can have, have thoughts on that, but we, we don't really know for sure about that. But all we do know, what we've been able to observe, is that Brenda Nelson has been a staunch defender of the role of weapons companies and particularly, and this is where it's very problematic, the role of weapons companies in the war memorial. A lot of listeners would be aware that he has not only been willing to accept sponsorships and donations from weapons companies, in fact the biggest weapons companies in the world, but he's been an active seeker of those donations. He's been out and, and actively urged the weapons companies to donate to the war memorial. It's troubling that Brendan Nelson, and we don't know about the current director yet, it's troubling that Brendan Nelson and his council didn't see this as a conflict of interest. And it's troubling that nobody in government, or insufficient people in government at least, saw this as a conflict of interest. Uh, the fact that the companies that actively profit from warfare, and not only profit from warfare, that actually need wars to succeed. The companies that need wars rely on wars and armed conflict and the threats of them. These companies are playing a role in commemorating the war dead. I mean, the notion is really, really quite obscene. It would be like having a tobacco company, say, Philip Morris or Benson and Hedges or somebody um, setting up commemorative space and actually celebrating in a hospital ward. It's astonishing that this is seen as an acceptable thing to do. And I say celebrating, I use that word carefully because in Anzac Hall in the War Memorial there have actually been celebrations, corporate celebrations. This um, Anzac Hall space is used for and it's promoted in that way. It's promoted for gala dinners and you know, being surrounded by uh, historical objects. The wording is deeply troubling. Um, several years ago, Northrop Grumman, one of the world's biggest weapons companies, launched their Australian operations and or a, an augmentation of them. And there was a big event in Anzac Hall and it was pure and pure celebration. It was reported as like a party. And to have this alongside, in fact, under the same roof as our commemorative space is really, really offensive. And it's troubling that the directorship of the War Memorial and our government don't see it that way. I don't know whether you want to answer this question or not, but Nelson is a medical doctor in charge yes. of what he's been doing over the last seven years. He has been in general practice in the past and then was president of the AMA and held, uh, then went into politics and after politics took up position as director of the War Memorial. Medicine can leave one in different directions and there's no particular problem with that. Health has many aspects to it. 
far-ranging um, impacts that need to, be, need to be looked at. So that in itself is not troubling. But I think what is troubling is Brendan Nelson's associations with weapons companies, which we, we don't know for how long they have been developing. We don't have definite information on what was anything that might have been happening there when he was Defence Minister. But certainly during his time as director of the War Memorial, he has been, and this is quite quite shocking to most people again, he has also at the same time been on the advisory board of the 11th biggest weapons maker in the world, which is Talas. And we know that uh, now he has gone on to a position after the War Memorial with a large weapons maker, Boeing. So his links with the industry seem to have been developing over some time and, as I mentioned, to have these things happening a lot at the same time as he's directing our preeminent place of war commemoration is, to most people, would seem a gross conflict of interest. One of the particularly troubling instances where Dr Nelson was specifically promoting a weapons company in his role as director of the War Memorial was in December 2015 when a, a Thales, Thales being a big weapons company, a Thales Bushmaster vehicle was being installed at the War Memorial and there's a, a ceremony. And Dr Nelson there was really talking up the advantages of this vehicle, of the Bushmaster. He called it a critical resource for, for Australian soldiers, uh, specifically named Thales um, as the maker. The War Memorial's own guidelines state that the War Memorial grounds must not, must not be used for commercial promotion or words to that effect. And he was their own director specifically promoting Thales and one of their products within the War Memorial. And this is just wrong. We need to put a stop to this. And there should be accountability for these violations of important guidelines. When people visit the War Memorial, what do they see of the arms manufacturer without actually looking for it? Is it, is it come out at them or is it subtle? As soon as you walk inside the foyer of the building, um, on the left there are panels with some of the donors listed and there are a number of weapons companies listed there uh, quite prominently. Behind the reception desk there's a big display panel again with some of the biggest donors listed on a uh, sort of a, a rolling panel. So the weapons companies' names come up there whether it's Lockheed Martin or... Uh, any of the other big ones that have, that have donated Northrop Grumman or BAE systems. So yes, if you're looking at, if you're standing at the reception desk, then, then you'll see them there. Throughout the building itself, no, it's, it's not, not prominent. Uh, the weapons company's names are not really in your face. They do appear in faces and one particular place, um, they appear is at the, the theatre inside the War Memorial, which is held for lectures, films, that sort of thing, named BAE System Theatre. So naming rights have actually been given to a company that has created huge humanitarian problems around the world. And this is just one shape, one's head and thinks, how can this be? I mean, BAE Systems 
have been linked with a lot of corruption. They've been a, a key supplier to the countries that are currently bombing Yemen, a country in humanitarian crisis. And here we are promoting them uh, inside our war memorial alongside those uh, who have fought believing in freedom and democracy and the advancement of humanity and all these noble goals. And here we have a company like BAE Systems, which is creating huge problems around um, in various places around the world, given really a free kick at the War Memorial. It's a policy which must change. Groups like Medical Association for French Reform will be continue, continuing our efforts to change this policy so that that cannot happen inside our War Memorial. Is there the possibility with the huge redevelopment, nearly 500 million, that the arms dealers will get more prominence? We don't know about that, but yes, I would say definitely it's a possibility. Uh, I mean, unless the unless the policy of the War Memorial changes, then there will be recognition, uh, recognition at least, possibly alongside objects. We don't know that recognition of who these objects were made by. And we know that whenever a company's name is mentioned, and it really doesn't matter the context, if it's in a, a positive environment, a preeminent institution like the Australian War Memorial, then that's really, really good for business. That possibility is also of concern. One of the other issues of concern in relation to the redevelopment is the proposal to have current AD operations displayed there. This is really, really one step to, well, let's say another step too far. It's one thing to look at Australia's military history and to commemorate that, but it's wholly another thing in our War Memorial to have current operations, which are often the subject of contention. But to put them inside our War Memorial, it really puts them beyond dissent. How can one criticise something that's displayed within our War Memorial? And whether that's a purpose or not, we don't know. But that's another aspect of the redevelopment, which we will be hoping and advocating does not go ahead. Also looking at the dearth of information at the War Memorial on the frontier wars, is that likely to change? No. And again, another problem with the redevelopment. If there is to be a redevelopment, then we could actually use additional space to incorporate the series of wars which are not commemorated at the War Memorial thus far and deliberately not commemorated, and that is, as you say, the frontier wars. The War Memorial is supposedly about Australians fighting valiantly to defend principles or to defend land. Now, we really couldn't think of a better example of Australians fighting valiantly to defend their land than the first Australians who were fighting to defend their land against colonial invaders. The War Memorial has chosen to create definitions that purposely exclude this from its mandate and states that the museum, the National Museum of Australia, is the right place to commemorate the frontier wars. But many people would dispute this and Medical Association for Prevention of War would dispute this. We would say that the frontier wars are very much part of our history, a tragic part of our history. In fact, as far as learning goes, they're probably central to a lot of what we need to learn as a nation and they should be there front and centre 
in the Australian War Memorial. What would you suggest people do if they do go to Canberra and visit the War Memorial? Obviously, have a have a good good look around. Um, go to BA System Theatre. Take note of the other mentions of the war profiteers that are displayed inside the building. If your if readers are not happy about this, then we'd really urge them to contact the War Memorial. It's easy to email the War Memorial to set out reasons why there's concern about the current direction, about the normalisation of weapons makers being there, about the normalisation of warfare generally within the War Memorial. And let the War Memorial know about this. I'd also urge listeners to have a careful think about this proposed redevelopment. And there's a lot of information on that on the website of Honest History some information about what's proposed, about the sorts of things that people might like to consider and the sorts of things that are worth raising with the War Memorial. But these things really do need to be brought home to the War Memorial, that the direction that it's taking at the moment is not the direction that a lot of Australians are happy with. Thank you, Sue. Thanks very much, Jan. And that was Dr Sue Wareham, who's the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And the time here at 3CR is 4.55. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Julian Assange, the editor and founder of WikiLeaks, is facing extradition from the UK to the USA at a trial commencing in London on Monday the 24th of February. A public rally will take place where we can call on all parties involved to end the torture of Julian Assange. Let's help bring home Melbourne's own Walkley Award-winning journalist. If he is extradited, he faces a secret military trial and a likely 175-year prison sentence, if not the death penalty. Please be on the right side of history and join us on Friday the 21st of February, 6.30pm at Victoria State Library. The No Extradition Rally is brought to you by Melbourne for Wikileaks, proud supporter of Community Radio 3CR. The last figures I saw stated that worldwide about 60,000 people will have the coronavirus 20191VCOR and 1,600 have unfortunately died. But is this virus as severe as we are led to believe or is it a case of yet another virus but being conveniently used to spread racism against China? In other words... Why does it seem to be treated differently to many other viruses which circulate around the world? I'm speaking with Coral Winter, journalist and writer, but also a retired research biochemist. First, Coral, what is a virus? virus is very, very tiny. What it is, it's a protein coat, and inside it is either a piece of DNA or a piece of RNA. And it can't live outside a viable cell. A virus was um, sort of crossed the line whether something is dead or alive. 
and they couldn't tell, but it can survive in a, a form that can just sit there for years, either in the soil or in, in many places, and it can suddenly come alive if it's in contact with a live cell where it, it uses the protein coat to latch onto a receptor of the cell and then insert itself inside the cell. And then it will reproduce by taking over the DNA or RNA machinery of a cell and reproduce thousands of or millions of copies of itself. And then the cell itself will die and it will then expel all the virus particles, the new virus particles, into the bloodstream. There are only two types of viruses, those that contain DNA or those that contain, which is um, your genetic material, or those that contain RNA, ribonucleic acids. They all have the same structure, protein coat, and inside containing a very small amount, a tiny amount of RNA or DNA that can take over the machinery of a live cell, either bacteria or also infect um, any, any animal cell. How often is there a new strain of virus? Of the coronavirus? Yeah, how often is there a new strain of it? Well, it can mutate very rapidly and can evolve. It's always evolving. And they probably think there's um, many coronaviruses in animals that haven't been discovered yet, but may, in particular, the coronavirus can um, jump from animals into mainly bats through bats and then cats or pigs eating the we or the poo of, um, of bats and um, then they become infected and then from us eating the meat of pigs or any live wild live animals will also then get, get infected, can get infected. If the virus has the right mutation to be able to latch onto our um, cells in the, in the lungs in particular. How does it compare, this new virus, how does it compare with other viruses that are in the system or in our systems at the moment? Well, I'll refer mainly to the epidemics. They first discovered the coronavirus that jumped from an animal into humans in the 1960s. And since then, there's been seven that have, been, that have jumped and become identified and infected humans, seven. The worst one was probably the SARS coronavirus, the severe acute respiratory syndrome called SARS, that happened in 2002 and 2003. And then another one happened in 2012 called MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. They were all uh, coronaviruses that jumped from animals into humans. Just for comparison, the SARS was quite virulent. Uh, it had a, a, what they call a, a mortality rate of 10%. So far, the coronavirus we've seen from um, Wuhan city has um, a mortality rate of about two to three percent. We should compare it with the 2009 flu pandemic in the United States which was spread by a also a novel strain of the H1N1 virus which is different from the coronavirus which spread from Mexico a market in Mexico in the United States and that infected 59 million um, US citizens and led to 265,000 hospitalizations and 12,000 deaths. Compared with so far, they've noted 1,670 deaths um, so far from the coronavirus. So being a virus, there's no antibiotics for treatment? No, you can only have antibiotic treatment for bacteria. But because it's a virus, there is, yeah, there's, 
have to have a vaccine specific for that virus. So they think it's going to take a year to 18 months to be able to develop a virus. Uh, 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 sorry, a vaccine for, the, for the, this coronavirus. Can you explain why people are being quarantined for maybe a week or two weeks? What does that do? Well, it's because it's so infectious. It seems to take 2 to 14 days and during that time they're not clear exactly of how long um, you're infectious. The, the problem is if you can infect other people when you've got no symptoms and they're not sure whether that's two days before you see symptoms or five or ten days before you see symptoms. In the common cold, you will only be infected, infect people for five days after you have symptoms or, or 24 hours beforehand. But this one, they're just not sure of how it is carried from human to human, how people get infected. It's clear, it became very early, clear very early on there was a human-to-human transmission, but it would have to be by droplets, coming in contact with droplets of the of someone who was coughing or sneezing, uh, who was infected. The, the symptoms should show up between after two weeks, so before 14 days. So that's why they're quarantining people for 14 days. They don't know exactly how long you're infected before that, but at least for 14 days, if you haven't got any symptoms, then you haven't got it. So that's what they're doing at the moment. But Australia is sort of the worst in this. They're the only country that has banned all travel from um, all, all the students who have enrolled here at, at universities have banned them from returning and for, at the moment. Whereas the UK and Canada, which also have a, a huge number of students, have not instituted this ban of entry into, into their country. Do animals get this virus as well? Do they have the same symptoms as humans? I don't know about their symptoms, but they would also, yeah, the, yeah, that was how it's transmitted from, usually from bats to civic cats, that's how they were transmitted, or to pigs. And the, in the case of the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MIRS, in 2012, that came from camels and then went to camel riders and um, became infected from um, infected cam- camels. It'd be, um, it, it, somehow if you're in contact with the animal, I guess sneezing or snorting, or also maybe eating um, any of its flesh or touching and touching your eyes and nose and mouth after you've, you've, you've touched a, a, a live virus. Do the animals die as well? I don't know about that. I have, no, I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe they've got better immune systems than we have. <laughs> well, that's it with a lot of viruses, isn't it, to build up the immune system so that you don't get infected as well as badly? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Does it mainly impact on people who are already sick? Yes, the people who have died so far, yeah, the 1,670 deaths, they've been compromised. They've had, well, I'm not, not all of it, not everybody, of course, but the people who have died from overseas, there's one in France, one in the Philippines, and um, the early deaths in China were, were because people had other diseases, other illnesses, uh, the first one man who died 10 days after the market was closed in Wuhan, he had a number of diseases, uh, cancer and diabetes and other illnesses, you know, comorbid. There's people who are elderly and also, and their immune system is a bit weak, and also very young children and babies, of course. They're the most, the ones who are the most um, in, in, at risk. When you look at the 
that huge ship that's in the harbour at, I think it's Yokohama, that seems to be absolutely a breeding ground for people. Australians aren't being allowed to come off that ship? That's a terrible situation, and it shows the lack of response by the Japanese government because they're absolutely paranoid that um, because the Olympic Games occurring there in June, so they don't want any spread of the disease. But they've had a lack of response because the Australians, not all everybody on the ship, is, well, I know there's 3,700 people on that ship, but none of, uh, up to yesterday, they all haven't been tested. Only a very few had been tested. But there were 355 who did test positive from that the group of ship, uh, the people on the ship, and they've hospitalised 24. But, you know, the the problem is that the Japanese authorities haven't really dealt with it in a very um, rapid response at all. And on top of that, the Australian government's done nothing about it. You know, the Americans removed their uh, American citizens on that ship, immediately put in, sent in the plane, and they're now out of off the ship. But um, the Australians, are, they're only just doing that, flying a... Sh- uh, uh, no, they've just sent a medical officer there today to see what the situation is, and they... Um, there's still 200 Australians on that ship. It just seems to be a breeding ground for the disease because what happened was a man who was infected got off the ship in Hong Kong but obviously left his germs all over the ship and um, it's a terrible situation. That should have been dealt with much more rapidly than what's been happening. I mean, the Chinese handled the situation, I think, superbly. They they closed down that market you know, on the, on the first of the... Wuhan market on the 1st of January, the day after they realised there was an epidemic. And there's lockdown, you know, there's millions of people in all the major cities who aren't allowed to leave leave their homes. Um, so they've really tried massively to contain the infection. They also, for the first time, unlike the SARS epidemic, they released the DNA sequence of the um, COVID-19 virus to everybody all around the world so that um, that meant you could develop specific tests very rapidly to pick up anyone who was infected. What's your view on sending the people to Christmas Island? I think that was ridiculous. They had found that nobody on that those 200 people confined to Christmas Island were infected and they've all been released today. But none of them had it. It was a bizarre, I think, response. They could have been just brought home and people stayed maybe confined to their own home that's what happened with other countries but to confine them in Christmas Island where there's no facilities and very few medical staff was was ridiculous I think now they're bringing home people from Wuhan City and they're confining them in um, um, in Darwin at a campsite but it's probably an overreaction I, I think there's been a massive response you know a massive sort of racist response to this Infection that didn't happen with the H1N1 virus because that was in the United States, even though 59 million citizens were um, infected and uh, 12,000 deaths. You know, you didn't get this hysteria every day. There's a report on how many have died and how many have been infected, but the, it's all come from Wuhan and the province of Hubei. But I think the Chinese response has been amazing and the Australian response is over the top and rather irrational. Well, it looks like it might be backfiring on the Australian government. They've, the students could go to other countries. The tourism from China seems to be destroyed and trade's diminishing. 
an over-the-top reaction. There's 100,000 Chinese students that have been locked out from entering Australia, even if they come from a third country. No other country has done that. But the university sector is obviously terrified. They're scared that they can lose these students. As you, as you said, they may go they may go elsewhere. And these students, you know, 50% of the foreign students in Australia at universities are from China. 23%, up to 25% of their revenue comes from these Chinese students and also other and also the other students from um, sorry the 25% includes the revenue includes those from India and Malaysia and Southeast Asia but it will affect them very badly so the university authorities are really worried and they're now offering online services during this two week lockout to maintain that that student base they're really scared i mean if it does continue. There's supposed to be an enormous economic impact on Australia, with seven and a half thousand jobs lost in the universities, and and also, I guess, with residential housing, and possibly a six billion loss to the Australian economy. And the international sector, education sector, their reputation in Australia has been, you know, is, is could be ruined by their response. It's been over the top. And I think it involves a lot of xenophobia, you know, people... Australia's always been a racist country, and this just proves it, I think, by their response. And a lot of, you know, poor Asian kids have been locked out of their private schools or confined to their room, and um, there's a lot of racism taking place within the community, within, within the cities, with people making barbed comments about why aren't they... Why aren't Asian-looking students? Why, you know, anyone who looks Asian, why should? Why aren't they wearing a mask and all of this? I, so I feel really sorry for the the young kids who at schools and schools and public and private schools here in Australia, and they have been attacked and sort of bullied and comments made about they're they're just causing a yellow peril. Yeah, to me, it just seems it's another way of attacking China, which we've been doing quite well for a few years now. Yes, it's another excuse to attack China and blaming all these um, uh, viruses and, and um, uh, infections on, on Asians um, the world round. Where, it, where it's happened in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia was the source of the MERS outbreak and, and in the United States with the H1N1 virus, the, um, that was the um, swine flu virus. It's another way of attacking China in line with what America is doing, the United States is doing, um, the Trump administration uh, seeing China as its main enemy and, and causing all sorts of um, problems um, because, they, because they know that China is having an increasing influence in the Pacific, with the Pacific Islands and all around Asia as well as in Africa because of its um, build-up of infrastructure in these countries that desperately need it and because... The Western governments have done nothing to help the certain world countries in this area. So it's, um, they, they see, the United States sees China as a big threat and Australia is just falling in behind, as they always do. I'd imagine, though, that China is a, a big economy now that they'll, they'll get over this one fairly soon. Well, I'm not so sure, you know. <laughs> if you think you just don't know what America has planned, you know, if they were really felt really threatened, would they launch, you know, another world war against China? I mean, you know, the, I think the United States has something like 
what is it, 2,000 bases or more all around the world, uh, military bases, and, you know, that new agreement in which they can share facilities in Darwin and have a permanent uh, U.S. base in Darwin, you know, that happened a year or so ago. You just don't know if what they will do to defend their economic interests. Just finally, Coral, if you had the power here in Australia, how would you have organised this in the last couple of weeks? What would you have done from your point of view? Well, I'd, I'd let people come back home and um, test them at the airport or on the ships that are coming here to see if they have a temperature and maybe, you know, that they confine themselves to their home for two weeks to pre- prevent the um, spread of the virus. As simple as that? Yeah. Okay, thanks. And, st- and stop the hysteria and stop the, the you know, the reporting, everyday reporting. Yeah. There's a simple way out of this. Yeah. And the other issue that maybe should be noted is that it's in the paper reported today that the one of the companies that supplies the mask, the face masks, has increased its price from $2.50 to $38.50, a massive increase in price because they're just being opportunists and taking massive advantage of this situation of the shortage of face masks. I mean, that's, that, they've been reported. It's a company called um, Livingstone and they're just massively making, uh, gouging, uh, price gouging customers to maximise their profit out of this epidemic. That should be, you know, the ACCC should jump onto that and, and, um, and find them. Absolutely. That's horrendous. But just what they normally do, though, these capitalist companies. And apparently the ACCC is going to do something about it, maybe. That's Coral Winter, retired bio research biochemist, living in Sydney now, 5.15. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. And a big welcome back to Tuesday Home Time to the Baykeeper, Neil Blake. We've had a lot of really bad news in Australia, all over Australia. Today we're going to start off with the good tidings. The and good tidings, yeah. And you're just the person to bring those tidings to us. The tide's coming in every day <laughs> and out again. That's the way it works. No, I think... Uh, you know, there's some really, one of the things I've observed over the last 30 or so years that I've been involved in local community and local government uh, initiatives is that um, there are becoming very articulate and informed community voices and that's actually resulting in uh, some positive change that's occurring. You know, and I guess that was probably exemplified with the Port Phillip Echo Centre, which was had its 20th birthday party in December, and that started as just an idea. 
really uh, the city of Port Phillip and local community groups uh, just thought we, we want a better world and we need a way of communicating this and showcasing the good things that are happening and the possibilities for the future. And so that's where the Echo Centre was, was founded. But it was naturally very under-resourced, as all good ideas are initially, and a lot of it was founded just on, on volunteerism and hope and passion. Since that time, though, over the 20-year period, we've actually extended the staff from 0.5 of a equivalent full-time position to um, around about eight full-time equivalent staff now working in education in schools on sustainability and also citizen science activities uh, around the wider region so it wasn't just con- we we're not just confined to the St Kilda area where the Echo Centre is based but actually connecting with organisations right across Melbourne and bringing young people on board from the ages of three upwards and that's amazing just how uh, articulate some of those preschoolers can be. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's all positive stuff. But where this is leading to is that, you know, even though there may be some articulate and uh, well-informed and good-intentioned people out there, uh, we really need the governance processes and, and the government processes to be uh, adapt to this so that uh, they're being informed by uh, the good purpose that uh, has been generated by the the community. So how do you bring the government and the governance into this? Well, unfortunately, it's a bit of a slow process, I guess, but I mean, uh, having um, consultative uh, processes that that actually give people, community at the grassroots level an opportunity to to contribute to the way they would like to see things managed into the future is is really what the key to it all. So you can see this playing out now in uh, how we're going to manage forests in the future. You know, we actually need the local people who uh, live in those areas and whose properties are being threatened to be part of of that discussion right from the beginning. In urban areas, uh, we, we need people to be thinking about what streetscapes are looking like too and town planning decisions about are we really going to have uh, you know, uh, an industrial waste facility next door to a food processing plant. Uh, all of those kind of considerations need to be part of a, a public concern and debate. And when you're talking about the rural areas, you've got to involve the local Indigenous peoples? Of course, yeah. And that, yeah, well, that's the one heartening thing, I suppose, that's come out of the fires is that uh, people are starting to appreciate that the first people actually did work the land with fire and to cultivate the plants and and to maintain a a healthy system that provided them with their needs and uh, so that people and and landscape could uh, coexist. Are there any particular projects that you can point to over those 20 years or are they all good? (laughs) Obviously there are some that have been more successful than others and there's different ways of measuring success, I suppose, too. But just important for the whole communities. I suppose they all are, aren't they? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, the the growth of our education program uh, is, and, you know, the fact that we've actually got qualified paid educators going out in schools every day of the week that is is a fantastic thing because it's it's those connections and information that's being shared on a daily basis that is the the big ripple in the pond i suppose and then that's connecting with government too because you have to have 
connection with the, the education system of the government to allow you to come into the schools to do that? That's right, yeah. So we're, we're always, I suppose, um, conscious of the fact that we need to present ourselves in a way that people are not just going to say, oh, you're a bunch of rat bags, we don't want to have anything to do with you. But uh, at the same time, we still need to be pressing the boundaries a little bit and, and uh, testing new ways of looking at things and one of the key ways we do that is with our citizen science programs which are educational and so they meet the curriculum sort of objectives for schools but uh, they also enable young people or, or in the case where we're general community citizen science people are becoming more literate about the issues they you know they've got numbers that they can talk rather than just an emotional kind of message uh, they've got evidence it's evidence-based advocacy that we uh, we're on about and so that's that's our approach and you have had a number of young people acknowledge for their work Yes, that's right. So um, that's uh, quite like Sam Perkins, for example, who was with the Brighton uh, Sea Scouts, uh, conducted a study of microplastics on the beach at Holloway Bend down there and uh, wrote a fantastic report. Uh, Chen Jin, too, has uh, also uh, done some fantastic work. She was a uh, high school student at McRobertson Schools High and uh, you know, sort of a great advocate and ambassador for, uh, for change and, and in the environmental initiatives. So, yeah, that's been... Uh, that, that's really, I suppose, the positive things is the young people, the advocates coming forward too so that uh, uh, it's not just us old farts sort of banging on about stuff. <laughs> we, we're uh, being able to see the next generation actually... Uh, raise a very articulate voice is, is key. There's been a voice for many, many years for container legislation and finally it, yeah. it's on the move. Yeah, it, um, I always felt it was inevitable that it would get back to it and uh, I could sort of see there were some sort of um, problems with uh, yeah, that, well, the argument against it was that it, was, it would sort of undermine the curbside uh, recycling system economically. I'm not quite sure why that was the case, but I could see how that um, yeah, maybe people could be rifling through uh, wheelie bins or something like that and taking them to the shop, but not the end of the world. But I think it, it's really our, our waste management system in general uh, it was in chaos anyway, and it needed to be totally uh, reinvented. And part of that is happening now since the um, countries such as China said, no, we don't want to take your commingled waste anymore to, to recycle it for you. you need, we need to take responsibility for that. And so naturally uh, uh, the container deposit legislation is a, is a first step towards that. And you'd hope, and I think we'll find, that... Um, the numbers of microplastics that we've been recording in the Yarra and the Maribyrnong River uh, with our monthly trawls will probably reduce once that, that container of deposit legislation is introduced because there'll be less plastic lying around on the streets getting run over by cars, etc. And so we would hope to see that that'll be an outcome of that as well as would volunteer organisations having a, an opportunity to fundraise for their local initiatives, you know, so it was a good way to actually uh, bring in some uh, 
dollars for uh, groups like Scouts, for example, that had uh, their local regional sort of bins for people to put their, their bottles and cans in. So it's, it just makes sense. My, me and a few mates, um, when I was uh, early teens, I suppose, we, we spent a weekend collecting bottles and bought a basketball. You know, so and that was great because we were getting exercise and you know, it was just a way of cleaning up the streets but also giving us opportunities to do stuff that we enjoyed. Also, is there more knowledge now or, what's the word, appreciation of cleaner streets? Because we see the, even the rubbish bins on the streets have got signs on them, bin it, make, you know, don't leave your rubbish on the footpath. Yeah. You know, and you do see that the streets are cleaner than what they used to be? Yeah, I think um, that's that's true. And one of the reasons too, which I think is a, a big shift in the mindset of the community, is that people are now understanding that if they see a bottle or something like that on the street, they'll put it up, pick it up and bin it, rather than just leave it there and say, oh, it's got nothing to do with me. People are actually taking responsibility for their environment. And that's ultimately what we need to... It's sort of... Uh, Responsible citizenship, I suppose. If you see something that's not right, well, you'd, you know, of course people will say, oh, that's nanny state stuff and that sort of thing. But, well, nannies aren't that bad, actually. Uh, in fact, I've, I've heard a few people say they actually like their nanny. Plastic bags. Yeah. Some of them are out of the supermarkets. There's very few, isn't it? Really, when the, in the whole scheme of things, because now you're getting to the stage where in the main supermarkets, everything is wrapped in plastic. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right, and uh, people s- still haven't quite made that mind sh- uh, the shift to uh, in their mindset to say, well, actually, why do we use plastic? You know, so and why can't I just take a, a cotton bag to the supermarket and reuse it multiple times? A lot of people are still overwhelmed by what's going on, and I think. You know, the, the pace of change and social media and all that sort of stuff is really uh, just clouding people's um, thinking a, a little bit or, or getting, getting them more so to just switch off rather than see that maybe um, you know, simple things can be changed. Many people still don't understand that uh, plastic is a problem, unbelievably, <laughs> even though, because they, there's a, this rhetoric about uh, anti-science rhetoric sort of going on coming from certain sources that that are, are pervasive of uh, many people's thinking and uh, so it will change though slowly unfortunately you know for example captain trash tells me he was at a preschool yesterday and uh, there's one of the four-year-old kids there who was just saying yeah, there's plastic everywhere my nanny she always uses it gets a plastic bag you know <laughs> and captain trash advised there well maybe you could buy your nanny a, a cotton bag for christmas or something or a birthday and just give it to her and say how about this that's uh hopefully those kind of changes are possible we've got to keep on believing that there is a way to bring the community together which is going to be in everyone's interest rather than living in this divided world where we're going to be constantly antagonistic and doubtful of every other person out there. We can't exist as a a society when we have this entrenched division and and a way of seeing the world and other people. We've We've got to look to bring people together. Well, if we acknowledge that the streets are getting a bit cleaner, what's happening on the beaches? 
Well, beaches are getting a bit cleaner too, and, and one of the big changes that I'd be interested to see uh, is with the um, Yarra Blitzes that have been conducted by the Yarra Riverkeeper over the last two years, and they've been using a giant vacuum cleaner with a, uh, which is maintained and managed by a group called the Clean Water Group, and they've collected massive amounts of uh, trash out of the river using that device and uh, also community hands collecting from canoes and sort of all sorts of stuff like that. You know, So it's a really good sort of sense of purpose that people have got working together. And I believe that that will inevitably show uh, a decline in the amount of trash that's actually ending up on the beaches in Port Phillip Bay. What's your knowledge of the, the rivers, how clean they are for the fish and the other animals that live in the, in, the, in the creeks and the rivers, how are they surviving? Well, uh, that's, I guess that um, it's an area that we probably need to do a little bit more work on, but certainly uh, because, for example, our manta net trawls for microplastics, um, that only captures stuff from the upper 20 centimetres of the water column, just on the surface, essentially. And so uh, we haven't been able to actually quantify what's degree of um, other plastics may be uh, flowing down the rivers, say for example a metre below the surface so different plastics have got different levels of buoyancy and so it's only those that are particularly buoyant that we've been capturing like polystyrene and hard plastic fragments. That's an area that's kind of unexplored in terms of plastic pollution but uh, we did have a group of students from at the Echo Centre from Massachusetts. So we've got a regular arrangement with uh, the Worcester Polytechnic over there where we have four third-year students, engineers uh, and communications students uh, on placement with the Echo Centre uh, for seven weeks at a time and working on a particular project. The last group actually designed a, uh, a thing they call the McWap, which is... <laughs> Uh, to do with uh, capturing uh, water samples from below at different levels below the surface. So they've come up with this device, which is pretty, cost about $500 to build, and you know, and it'll be quite effective in the way of actually quantifying uh, plastics at those lower levels. So that'll be good. But meanwhile, Melbourne Water has also been doing, you know, a lot of. Um, good monitoring of water quality through their Water Watch program. So things like excess nutrient loads and things like that are equally as critical as plastic pollution in terms of uh, limiting the potential for life in the water waste. But they also know that um, water runoff from catchments that actually flows across permeable surfaces rather than just concrete is going to be much healthier for, for the uh, animals that live in the waterways. I've been speaking with people who say that the platypus are back. I think it's around Lower Temple Stowe area. Do you have any other knowledge of of creatures coming back to the rivers and the, the beaches that weren't there a while ago because it is a bit cleaner? I don't, unfortunately. I would love to know that. <laughs> I had heard that the, you know, there have been some sightings of platypus. So I guess, uh, too, that uh, it's, it's good to hear those sort of... Um, indications of of success and positivity but the key is to maintain it into the longer term too. And are the councils helping with this? I mean you've got the bay keeper, you've got the river keeper but you've also got to have 
the local councils on either side of the rivers, the creeks. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of um, the kind of dialogue that uh, I'd like to see is that where we've got cross-sectoral sort of issues discussion. So uh, where you've got community members, the people who have been monitoring the platypus and, uh, but, and also government agencies such as Melbourne Water and local government in particular, uh, which manages the streets and sources of um, pollution such as wastewater and litter and stuff on the streets, but also uh, they manage to maintain the parks and other places. So we want to be ensuring that they're using... Um, methods that are environmentally sustainable. So and that's where you just need people from different sectors sitting around the table saying, okay, what do we want to achieve here and, and how can we each contribute to it? Is that happening? Uh, well, it is to a certain extent, yeah. So I think it's, um, again, getting back to the 30-year sort of uh, change that's occurred. You know, for example, 30 years ago, there, there were no community groups in St Kilda. There's, it's been an evolution and I've noticed too that over that period there were organisations such as the Ballerine Catchment Network formed around about 30 years ago as did the Werribee River Association. You know, So there is a number of community initiatives that, that are actually have been growing over time getting some real traction in their local areas and respect and knowledge, their local knowledge base that uh, ultimately is going to be give um, the opportunity to sit around the table with with uh, other organisations such as government, and so that's the sort of thing we're advocating for in various policies and strategic directions that uh, governments are consulting on. We're saying, look, you've got to bring community in to the table so that you've got a regular dialogue, not just a, a stilted process occasionally that uh, where you ask people what they think and then turn your back on them. Because all that, there's all those friends groups now, aren't there? The friends That's right. of this creek and that creek, and then you've yeah. got a, a group like the Merry Creek Management Committee yeah, well, that's another one that's been around for more than 30 years, yeah. So there's, and they're groups that are on a regional basis too. They're not just groups that have those connections with the local friends groups that, that look after a little patch of vegetation or part of a creek or something. So it's the groups though that have that regional perspective and, and have those grassroots links to the smaller groups that have the potential, I think, to really bring good information to the table for government. Well, down St Kilda Way, down the Bay Way, what connections do you have with the Aboriginal communities? We've got, um, or had a long-term connection with the Boonwurrung Foundation, who uh, have been working with us probably for about the last 20 years or so. That's been largely uh, directed by our, where we're located, and they tend to be based in around our area as well. So that there is um, division, though, to be honest, amongst the Aboriginal community. And, in fact, the Bunurong Land Council have been given RAP status. That's registered Aboriginal Party status for the Bunurong country south of Mentone. Uh, so that's a little bit of a vexed question, to be honest. But I guess a good example of where we need to start to see how we, go, how we can resolve that, because effectively it's, uh, it's a divided community which to my mind is, uh, can be explained by the fact that the, you know, the first people from that area were probably the heaviest, most affected of, of any in Victoria 
by uh, the centre of Melbourne um, being where it is and uh, gradual uh, or very rapid dispossession of of people from that land and uh, lateral violence that's occurred as as a result of that. uh, People tend to turn on themselves a little bit, unfortunately. Well, that's, lots of communities do that, don't they? They do, yeah. It just seems to be a natural process. And uh, uh, so, yeah, again, we need to think, well, what do we actually want to see here? And uh, to my mind, we want to see a united community, not, not a divided one. Well, you've been talking about the positives and the good sides, and let's talk for a little bit about what needs to be done right at this moment about the bad things that are happening around our area. Yeah, well, again, we need to support the people who are actually um, wanting to do something about it, you know, and supporting community radio is a good place to start because uh, if these ideas aren't being put out into the community, well, uh, people aren't thinking about it. It's, that's just the way. It's, it's almost like an ec- ecological thing, really, that uh, unless there are ideas out filtering into the community for people to have a think about, they might say, no, I don't know about that. But, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, you know. So at least getting people thinking about it and discussing with their friends and amongst their peers uh, is going to be the first step, you know. So uh, communication is the key. What's the priority for you in the next little while? I'm trying to trying to um, narrow my field of operations down. I, I would like to do more work on just the, the monitoring and uh, observing and communicating about the natural Things around the bay, and particularly in the coastal areas, which I believe are going to be most impacted by climate change, that coastal zone, uh, because of erosion and displacement of habitats. Uh, and that seems to me to be a good place to actually get people who live around the bay to start thinking about climate change and seeing the need to take action on it. Take you back 30 years, Neil. What started you off? In this field, because it wasn't what you were doing previously. (laughs) No, definitely not. Um, Well, yeah, it was interesting, really, evolution, I suppose, of my sort of uh, work life. It was quite varied when I was a younger person, uh, but uh, I came from a uh, timber-getting background. My father and his uh, uncles, etc., were all woodcutters. Uh, or sleeper cutters. I sort of, uh, I suppose, developed a work ethic by sort of <laughs> being amongst them and having to go out and uh, load railway sleepers onto a truck when I was, from the time I was about 13. It wasn't like an eight hour day or anything, but, um, and I liked being out in the bush anyway, and it was good spending time with my father, you know, so we were basically just the two of us out there. And I learnt, got to learn how to drive a truck and, uh, is chainsaws and various other things like that and sort of knew a little bit about trees and you know, what, what to watch out for if there might be a limb falling. Uh, safety was obviously a big factor when you're out working in the bush. Uh, I ended up having to come to Melbourne though, um, as the forestry people said, that uh, either my father or myself had to stop cutting because they were concerned the, uh, the river red gum forest could be depleted. I don't think it was really, but... Uh, that's that's was the story at the time. So I ended up um, coming to Melbourne and, and got a job as a park ranger in St Kilda, largely because I uh, knew how to drive a truck and use a chainsaw. It wasn't anything to do with nature, but it gave me an opportunity though to spend time in the parks and along the, the beaches and uh, to actually start to study 
what was going on with the natural history of the area of inner Melbourne, St Kilda in particular. And uh, yeah, so it's been a journey ever since. Penguins came along uh, to St Kilda and so that study sort of led to other interests in well, you know, what, what is coming out of the rivers and you know, why are the penguins living in St Kilda. So yeah, it's just been a, an ongoing journey. And it's been an ongoing journey for those penguins too, isn't it? They're doing very nicely, thank you. It has, and and I suppose that's one thing that's really convinced me about the need for uh, um, cross-sectoral collaborations because a key thing that we did with the St Kilda penguins after three years of studying them and concluding, yes, there is a penguin colony here, even though it must be crazy, they're totally out of their wrong territory. Um, St Kilda penguins, by the way, were the... uh, first colony of penguins anywhere in the world that took up residence on a a human-made structure and they're still there. We managed to get though the area declared a cooperative management area for wildlife which was a provision of the Victorian Wildlife Act. What that meant was that there would be a cooperative management advisory committee formed which had representatives of the state government's environment people. It was the Port of Melbourne Authority who were uh, responsible for the breakwater as a structure, the Royal Melbourne Yacht Club, the occupants of the St Kilda Harbour. Earthcare St Kilda was the group that took up studying the penguins and formed as a result of that. They were represented. The City of Port Phillip was represented on this advisory committee and subsequently the penguins which were a bugbear to the Yacht Club because it meant they couldn't get their harbour redeveloped Over the next 15 years, the harbour was completely redeveloped and the penguin population increased 2,000%. So everyone was a winner. And it really brought home to me that having the right people around the table saying, OK, what are we going to do here, was the way to go. And now it's a tourist attraction and they've got many volunteers who come every night to make sure the penguins are looked after. That's right, and actually one of the things that I'd really like to do, hopefully this might occur in the next few months, is to actually record the history of the, that, that evolution, and in partic- particular to estimate the contribution that volunteers and community has made to that outcome, because it, it would be huge, much bigger than any other government organisation Probably, I would, I would expect at least tenfold. Do you have any idea why they decided that, I know you can't read the minds of penguins, but <laughs> why they thought so close to human habitation? It's about seven k's from the CBD, but it's not far from the, probably three k's from the, four k's from the mouth of the Yarra. Although some say that should be the anus of the Yarra. Yeah. Because, <laughs> but no, it's, it's clear though that the, what's coming out of the river is actually creating biological activity and productivity, which is what's attracted the penguins there in the first place. And this has been borne out recently in the shell surveys that we've been doing around the bay since, uh, shoreline shell surveys since 2009. And we've been able to uh, calculate the biomass of shell material at different beaches from Point Lonsdale around to St Leonard's, uh, to Werribee, Altona, Point Jellybrand and th- three beaches at St Kilda uh, and at Seaford and Dramana and Rye. Surveys conducted almost yearly through the summer by the sea program. And the beaches around the top of the bay, particularly from uh, Altona to uh, 
St Kilda uh, have got the greatest volumes of uh, shells on them. It can only come down to more nutrient being in that top part of the bay compared to the beaches down the bottom where we just don't have the same influx of nutrients. Clever little buggers, aren't they? That's right. They work it out. (laughs) Thanks, Neil. Thank you, Jan. Hoi there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3C. Since its establishment, the Pine Gap US spy facility has played a pivotal role in wars around the world which have resulted in untold death and destruction. Today, the focus is on one aspect of that, its US drone missile operations and Australia's complicity in these US atrocities through hosting the facility. Stephen Daly, an IPAN spokesperson, that's Independent Peaceful Australia Network, is on the phone to talk about a whistleblower, Brandon Bryant, whose revelations back in late 2012 led to testimony to an expert council at the UN, a German parliamentary committee investigating the NSA spy scandal, a German whistleblower award, a play, Game of Drones, a documentary, Drone, This Is No Game, amongst other reactions to his exposure, and in more recent times, reported in The Independent earlier this month. Stephen, who we're talking about is a young former US Air Force pilot who was one of the first drone operators for the Predator program from 2007 to 2011. What did he actually do? Well, he was basically um, firing missiles from a place near uh, Los Angeles, sorry, Las Vegas in the US. He was actually um, using the drone to kill people um, on one of a team that was doing that. So the, the targeting information game came from elsewhere, but the, the firing information came from the, his site. Uh, and so <laughs> it's, uh, he eventually traumatized him. You're just wondering what sort of training they give young people like this, because he was young, wasn't he? They're very young, and I think they deliberately use the young because what <laughs> part of what they use in training is effectively video games. They use, manage to, or they try to abstract the young people from the reality of what they're doing, killing human beings, to make it look like they're just playing a game, and they use that in their their training. Uh, they've actually created games to do that, for them to play with, in inverted commas, to um, create an unreal atmosphere. And, of course, a lot of young people do play games, so it's it's quite effective. But they also, um, when they do, as they inevitably do, many of them become aware of what's going on and the reality of what they're doing when they actually see the infrared heat signatures of people fading, including people who uh, are obviously children, they brutalise them, which Mr uh, Brand also pointed out. He said they they used all sorts of tactics against him. They ridiculed him, humiliated him, brutalised him in order to get him back on on track. Uh, And then eventually they um, got rid of him. 
they've got a very high turnover, uh, apparently, in, in these uh, jobs, but then they also have plenty of others that, that uh, they can recruit. Can you understand how the system works? Yeah, I think I can. It's because uh, this is part of a wider field of autonomous vehicle warfare. I mean, they do it on the ground as well. Um, and the tendency is uh, to try and move away from from people, uh, even these people here. Um, what they want in their fantasies, and, and by that I mean fantasies that they have spoken out loud about, senior figures and researchers in um, the American military, is vehicles that can do the target at target acquisition and the firing, the decision about who to fire on themselves. That's where they eventually want to get to, so they don't have any messy things like people getting in the way. They're not there yet. They, they may never get there, but that's what they want. So it's, uh, it's very insidious and very, um, I suppose you'd call it uh, science fiction-y, but it's a reality in lots of ways. One other uh, thing that I found out was that the drone targeting is partly settled by algorithms that they create, which are meant to distinguish between top quality, you know, in their terms, and lower quality uh, targets. By that, I mean that they they can uh, they have far more targets than they're actually ready to to attack, or they have enough drones to attack, and so they have to um, prioritise. And these algorithms are computer algorithms that decide, well, what's what's a, a better target than that? But some of the things they use are things like, oh, well, if they um, turn off their phone or they um, give their phone to someone else, then that's an attempt to escape surveillance. So they must be, that makes them more likely to be terrorists. So that would increase their chances of getting uh, targeted. So this is the sort of atmosphere that's created in these places and the, the sort of uh, decision-making that's done. And I, I think it's also important to, to note that the, the highest level of drone killing happened uh, under the Obama administration. It's still high under Trump, but it, the height was under Obama in his first uh, term. So this is a bipartisan murder that's happening in, in various parts of the world. Is the United States the only country using this technology? It's not the only country using the technology, but as far as uh, I'm aware, it's the only country that systematically assassinates on a large scale. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't other assassinations that happen, but they're certainly not publicised. The U.S. As this is one in some ways, it publicises the fact that it does this, and it does it in many in, uh, time in countries that they're not at war with. A place like Pakistan, where they regularly use drone attacks and drone assassinations. I mean, I should be a little bit careful in using the word assassination because it implies some sort of precision, which Alex Edney Brown and others have made clear or not. I mean, they've got kill radiuses of um, 90, up to 90 metres. So that's not a precision in any sense of the word. That's uh, We're talking about a street of mud brick houses in Pakistan or tribal areas or Yemen or Syria. And it's the person who they've designated a terrorist. We don't know what the justification is for that. They've decided it is, and, and we do know that the Americans tend to say anyone who opposes them is a terrorist. Their family, 
their neighbours uh, half the street. That's what we're talking about when we call when we say drone assassinations. But yeah, they they do this uh, around the world, and their justification is uh, it's preemptive. These people may be taking action against the U.S. or may in the future take action against the U.S. and so we're justified in killing them. But most of the places they do this in, are not, they're not even in a state of war with. Have there been any challenges yet? Oh, there's been various challenges, but I mean, the, the, I mean, the key one that could that could be done is the International Court of Justice, but the U.S. has withdrawn from that. So it's really, uh, there's really very little in legal terms that can be done. I mean, after all, the, the justification they use is the same justification in broad terms they use for the Iraq war, and there's never been any, uh, there's only been public opinion blowback on that one. There hasn't been any legal blowback on that. They still do the same sort of thing. How long had Brandon been doing this before he realised that he couldn't do it any longer? Well, he was in the US military for six years in total, but he, he came after the, of four or five years that he, he gradually became more and more um, disillusioned. And he said he saw his breaking point after he killed a child in Afghanistan that his superiors told him was a dog. In other words, you know, just drop it. Don't don't uh, challenge this. Um, he saw a hate signature, which clearly was uh, to him a child coming out of a building that he'd just targeted. And he told his superiors about this, and uh, they told him it was a dog to drop it. And he just realized then that it was totally illegitimate. He uh, he says he, he contributed directly to killing 13 people himself, but he suffered eventually from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which, you know, led him to, to leave. But we've heard from other information that quite a few of these drone operators suffer from various illnesses and have psychological effects. And I think it's, it is the remoteness of it, the unreality of it that eventually gets to them. It's, that starts off being a defence, but it, in some ways it, um, it turns into its opposite after a while. And I'd imagine these young people never recover. It'd be very well, difficult. No figures for, for that, but I mean, they, they're dropped, basically, by the US military. Um, they're an embarrassment. So, but we do know that there's a very high rate of suicide in across the U.S. ex-military, and that would include ex-drone pilots. That, I mean, they call pilots, even though they're actually sitting in a in a coach in a in a room thousands of miles away. And I'd imagine while they are doing this job, they're not allowed to speak with family and friends about what they're doing. No, no, they, that's um, they be um, breaking all sorts of military laws and they uh, they know that they're going to be harassed and persecuted and if they make too much of a fuss <laughs> they've got the example of Chelsea Manning and, and Julian Assange uh, in front of them uh, as to what happens when, when you really piss off the American military and the American government but not everyone is as strong as those two people. What were the ways he was harassed and persecuted? Can you talk about that a bit more? He talks about, let me see. First Kate. of all, were dismissed. Uh, his concerns were dismissed as, as unnecessary. Then he, his superiors used what he calls punitive measures and mockery to keep him in line. He said it broke his spirit. 
They psychologically beat me and ridiculed me to keep me in line. They took away his free time, forced him to sit in a seat or to be tried under the Uniform Code of Military Justice for disobeying orders. They didn't continue with that, but they threatened him with it. And he said that he he felt it was a, a prison for him. His family was also threatened for speaking out against the drone program, and he'd lost friends and be estranged from other members of his family over his whistleblowing. So, you know, there's a very big psychological pressure was built uh, against him to get him to shut up. Is it known how he is now? No, I'm sorry. I couldn't find any more information about that, um, what situation he's in, because it's, it, yes, you say, it's, uh, he was enlisted from 2006 to 2011. But he did do this interview much more recently with um, Democracy Now!, so he's well enough to give the the um, uh, the interview. Uh, basically, I think he's been trying to, at the same time as trying to recover from his uh, the effects of this, he's also been talking out and speaking out about what he experienced and what happened. I'd imagine there's further punishment for doing that. Yep, yep. The uh, they continue with that. They they of course have in a dilemma that they don't want to give him too much publicity so you know they're always balancing how much punishment to inflict uh, uh, at the same time as how much publicity to give people like him but in the end they will they will do a, a Chelsea Manning or a Julian Assange against the the top whistleblowers and it's um, very much about discouraging others and that's Stephen Daly from IPAN Independent Peaceful Australia Network in Adelaide and next week on the program Stephen will be talking about the links between those drone attacks and Pine Gap in Central Australia. That's all for me for now but I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock but do remember Friday evening, Friday late afternoon to be in the city for this important rally. Bye for now.